All right. Thank you, Kay, for uh, the worship time. It was a lo- uh, lovely. <clears throat> so last night we looked at the biblical beginnings of the church as the community of those who are caught up in Jesus' mission of establishing the kingdom of God and who were subsequently empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to Christ's death, resurrection and ascension to the ends of the earth was the instruction that they were given. We also saw how in the New Testament, the church is first and foremost a gathering of those in Christ for the purposes of worship, witness, instruction and service to be limbs of Christ's body. And as uh, Kay shared uh, this morning, the idea of uh, going to church is not quite the same as going to a body. I mean, you are the body, you don't go to the body. And so the image of the body is you know, Paul's um, distinctive metaphor for the church. The New Testament accounts themselves cover the so-called apostolic age. So that's a period of time from Jesus and the apostles and their immediate followers uh, when they were still alive and active, probably up until the end of the, th- the first century. So, you know, the, the usual uh, understanding is John's Gospel was written in the 90s, and John was a very old man at that stage. And so the, the Apostolic Age covers the, 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 the first um, century, the, the time after Jesus, up until the turn of, uh, of the century. The next 250 years or so covers the post-apostolic, or if you like, the anti-Nicene period. That's the time between the first generation of the Jesus movement that we read of in the New, uh, in the New Testament and the Council of Nicaea in 325. Uh, the Council agreed on the famous Nicene Creed, uh, which has formed the basis for Orthodox Christology ever since. And I've just copied the first couple of lines out of that. I'm sure you will recognize it. Uh, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of God, uh, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, and so on. It goes using uh, Greek philosophical concepts to try and capture the relationship between the Son uh, and the Father. So that's why it's the anti-Nicene, the before Nicene period. Uh, we could also call this period the pre-Christendom period or the pre-Constantinian era. Uh, that is the time before the church became the official religion of the Roman Empire. The Council of Nicaea was actually convened and chaired by Emperor Constantine uh, to settle a raging theological dispute within the church and to agree on what the empire's sanctioned religious belief would be. Ten years before that, Constantine had become the first Roman emperor to embrace Christianity. You may know the story around that he had a vision on the eve of battle and saw a a cross in in the clouds and he heard the words, in the sign you will conquer, uh, and he went on to have a, a victory in this in this battle, uh, civil war it was, and he subsequently took the hint and decided that Christianity was the, the, the horse to back. And so he, he legalised Christianity and he endorsed it as the imperial religion. 
And naturally, uh, that would have been welcomed, I'm sure, by many at the time as evidence that the gospel had finally triumphed over paganism. That Eusebius, the early church historian, sort of speaks of it almost as though the kingdom of God had come in its fullness at that point. Interestingly, as a kind of footnote on this, uh, because people talk about Constantine becoming the first Christian emperor, uh, it was actually another 25 years before Constantine himself was baptised as a Christian. And he underwent baptism uh, because he feared that he was about to die. And so just weeks before his death, he went and went through the church's rites of baptism. Up until that point, he had refused to accept the the church's entry requirements. Um, But when death was beckoning, he finally became a Christian. And evidently, it was a very powerful experience for him. Uh, and if at any point Constantine became a Christian, then it was probably then not 25 years earlier when he decided to adopt Christianity as a religion. Anyway, that's just by the way. The result was the emergence of Christendom, or imperial Christianity, by which we mean that merging of Christian religion, politics and culture that prevailed in the West up until very recently, the merging of church, politics and culture, uh, which we can call the Christendom reality. Essentially, in Christendom, one's Christian identity depends on geography and genes rather than on voluntary confession and commitment. One is a Christian simply by being fortunate enough to be born into a country that recognised Christianity as its religion and being christened into, as an infant into the church. So christening, the word itself implies or affirms that the child becomes a Christian at that point, uh, even though it's only days old. And that became the universal practice after Constantine. So in the Christendom reality, church and state exist in a kind of symbiotic relationship. On the one hand, the state uses its political, its legal and its military power to protect the church and to privilege or actually often compel Christian belief. On the other hand, the church returns the compliment by providing the kind of religious noise in society. The rituals, the symbols, the moral standards, the credibility structures, they glue a civilization together. And that taken for granted merging of Christian politics, culture and, uh, and the church, that taken for granted reality persisted for almost, well, for over 1500 years. But the Christendom period is now over and it ain't ever coming back. (laughs) We've entered into a post-Christendom period, which has been and still is deeply destabilising for the mainstream church. And in a sense, it's also been quite destabilising for wider society because it's lost the kind of religious rootage that most civilizations depend upon. A post-Christendom period. It's not a post-Christian period. It's not the sense that Christianity itself is dying out 
or that it has somehow been proved to be false, although secular critics would see it that way. In actual fact, on a global scale, the, the Christian religion is flourishing. It's not a post-Christian era, it's a post-Christendom era, one in which the church is no longer at the centre of political, cultural and religious power and branding the whole package as allegedly Christian. Now, in our day, the church is viewed as a private club or a personal lifestyle option with no right at all to dictate what others believe or do or think and certainly with no unique claim to truth. And that's the reality that we exist in today. Uh, Cracks began forming in Christendom in the 16th century with the Protestant Reformation. Uh, The crack was intensified by the 17th century wars of religion, by the 18th century enlightenment, by the scientific revolution in the 19th century, and by the decolonization movement in the 20th century, which has seen a massive increase in the pluralism of Western uh, societies and countries. But perhaps as the post-war, World War II, baby boomer generation, of which there are three or four, at least three of us here, um, it's, 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 it's our generation, I'll include you with the baby boomer category if you don't mind, that has seen the last vestiges of the Christendom reality dissolve. And I, even in my short life, when I look back to being a young person, a child or a teenager or, or a school kid, uh, and compare it to what exists now in New Zealand society, uh, I'm sometimes staggered at the degree to which the kind of Christian trappings of our society have disappeared. Uh, we don't anymore, except for Brian Tamaki, talk about being a Christian country. Uh, we still sometimes have national flags in churches, which I regard as a kind of heresy. Uh, when, I was, when I was at school, we, and I went to a new state school in Wanuamata, of all places, we still sang hymns in the assembly. I can't remember whether the headmaster dared to pray, but many schools still had prayer in their assemblies. It was still a day when most infants, regardless of their parents' belief or affiliation with the church, most infants were christened, as, as a matter of fact. Uh, television on Sundays had no ads because it was Sunday. The only thing that's still left is Good Friday being a time when the shops are closed. We all know that the garden centres fiercely oppose that in our day. There's no longer any religious programmes provided on public media. There used to be on a Sunday. We got hymns of praise, I guess, at 10am on Sunday morning. But it used to be, you know, a, a part of the national um, broadcasting system was to provide some kind of religious program on a Sunday. We still hold civic ceremonies like Anzac Day in the cathedrals, which again I have real problems with. Um, (laughs) We have chaplains in the army that are not only chaplains to the army, but they're actually military officers. They're part of the army, sort of one foot in both camps. Um, But if we go to England, we think of the established church, the queen is a defender of the faith, bishops are in the House of Lords just by virtue of being bishops. Uh, and I guess in the American situation, the version of Christendom is, is American civic religion, which has a kind of Christian tinge to it, but really isn't. But, you know, God bless America and God we trust one's country under God, all that sort of stuff. All that, all that is the, is the, is the last vestiges of Christendom. And um, 
you know, it really, I mean, think, for example, recently, uh, the prayer that opens Parliament uh, wasn't abolished because they thought it's good to hang on to the tradition of having a prayer, but it was it was de-Christianized. Um, the, the references to Jesus Christ, I think this is right, were taken out and became a much more generic kind of prayer. So all those are, I think, the fraying edges of the last vestige of Christendom dissolving before our, before our eyes. And I think recognising the far-reaching changes associated with the demise of Christendom is a really important factor for rethinking what the role of church means in a society where the, where the Christian noise isn't just assumed as, as the way it should be. And rather than hankering for the good old days, when the church was at the centre of society and was respected or feared in equal measure, it used to be that when I was a child, I remember that if, if, a, um, if a, uh, a, a minister was pulled over by the police for speeding, he was never given a ticket because <laughs> he was a minister. <laughs> um, so whether that's respect or fear, I'm not sure. But um, rather than bemoaning the loss of Christendom, perhaps it's more useful for the church today to sort of reach back to the period before Christendom. So the period of the New Testament, for sure, which remains our kind of normative reference point, but also to the post-apostolic age for the following couple of centuries. Because in both cases, when we go back to that period, we're seeing the church trying to live its vocation in a pluralist kind of context. They're not, they weren't living their, their faith in a kind of Christian context, and that became, after Constantine, the norm. But they were living the faith, they were following Jesus in a pluralist and often very hostile setting. And to look at that as an example, not only for, its, for the context it was in, but also for how it exercised moral and spiritual power. In spite of, or maybe actually because of, its marginality, because of its human powerlessness. <clears throat> I think the same applies just again as another footnote because we've, we've had sort of uh, a period when we, when we looked at this in Mosaic. I think the same applies to the radical renewal movements during the Christendom period, uh, such as the Anabaptist Reformation in the 16th century. Movements that rejected the cultural and political captivity of the church, recognised it for what it was and rejected it. They never accepted or depended upon the Christendom model of an imperialistic and coercive Christianity. And so, in a sense, they're not, they're not sort of um, tripped up by the reality of, of, of Christendom dissolving around them because they've never really believed it in the first place. And I think they have, uh, that, th those traditions uh, have much to teach us as well. And perhaps these ancient examples uh, have maybe even more to teach us than do the latest church planting strategies that are usually used to desperately try to stem the church's relentless decline. There was an article um, Peter and I talked about recently in, in the New York Times by David, what's his name? David Brooks. Brooks. Uh, quite a long article about uh, evangelicals are trying to buck the trend of the, of the terrible things that are happening to the evangelical church over there and quoted one well-known person who's talked about planting 10,000 churches as the answer. And while that may be a good thing, it does seem to me it's like putting your thumb in the dike. Uh, and maybe it's best for us to look 
beyond those kinds of things and look back to the beginning and just try and get a, a feel for how the early church managed to to succeed. And that's what I want to go on and talk about now, which is this the, the, success, the success of the church prior to Constantine. So we noted uh, yesterday that the Jerusalem church, according to the book of Acts, enjoyed spectacular growth. The number of believers grew from 120 in Acts 1 to 3,000 in Acts 2 to 5,000 in Acts 4 to multitudes in Acts 5 to several thousands in Acts 21. So the church was popular enough to invite mounting repression from the Jewish authorities. There was something going on that they thought needed to be, needed to be stamped out, including from that fanatical young Pharisee called Saul. And you know the story as well as I do. There was legal threats and there was imprisonment and so on. But eventually things uh, turned to, to violence. And Stephen was martyred in Acts 7. And then the story says, A severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Remember Jesus had instructed them to carry the gospel through Judea and Samaria uh, and here it was and it says, imposed on them because they were driven out of the city. But the exiles carried the gospel with them and they created this network of Christian com- communities all around the major cities of the Mediterranean region. Uh, these cities mainly attracted converts from local synagogues uh, and especially from the Gentile God-fearers who had, were attached to the synagogue, people like Cornelius, who had already been drawn to to the Jewish faith because of its purity, because of its simplicity, uh, but were never quite welcomed enough into the community because they weren't circumcised or they weren't uh, submitting to Jewish law. And in many sense, they were easy pickings for the Christian movement. And so the church, uh, as they preached the gospel, particularly from them, but still from the realm of the synagogue's influence, that the churches grew. But also, again, you know this, you just have to read the text. Uh, they, they also began to preach to ordinary pagans. And quite quickly, the churches became multi-ethnic. And that raised big, big questions about what Jewish law, what role it was to play in these communities that were no longer purely Jewish, but included Gentiles as well. And so many of Paul's letters struggle with this, this question. Now, I said last night that it seems that these individual house churches would, would, were pretty small um, because people lived cheek by jowl in small apartment buildings in the cities and small villages, and so these weren't huge, big megachurches by any means. Uh, and they were socially insignificant as far as the Romans were concerned. They, they drew on the dregs of society. You know, slaves and the poor and you know, women who were sort of getting too big for their own boots and so on. And so they, 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 it wouldn't have been seen as a socially um, significant movement. But it was growing and it was spreading fast. The growth was partly attributable to the missionary endeavours of the apostles and especially Paul, who went from city to city proclaiming the gospel and planting churches. But it wasn't all down to the work of professional missionaries. Uh, It seems, for example, that the church in Rome, which was the second most important church after Jerusalem, probably began from returning travellers, maybe some who had been converted on the day of Pentecost, because 
Acts 2, it talks about visitors from Rome being there. Uh, these travellers returning to Rome and sharing their faith with others. And these little pockets of Christian belief began emerging in the city. Because, as one writer explains, got the quote there in your notes, the early Christians had a compulsive desire to bear witness to others. Things became more difficult for the church, however, once the Roman authorities started noticing it. At first, the Roman authorities regarded the church as just another form of Judaism, a squabble that was internal to the Jewish community. They didn't like the Jews anyway, but they didn't distinguish the Christians from non-believing Jews. But in AD 64, Emperor Nero launched a vicious persecution against the church in Rome. That was the first time that the Roman uh, authorities had explicitly singled out the Christians for persecution. You may know the, 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 the stories of the atrocities that Nero committed uh, against the churches, including you know, lighting the city at night with people on crosses, on fire, Christians on crosses. Uh, Rome itself was infinitely tolerant of religious diversity. It wasn't that they were bothered by the fact that lots of different religious cults existed. Not by any means. But if any group caused social unrest or refused supreme devotion to the emperor, then it was liable to be suppressed. And we know from the book of Acts that the Christians often incited popular hostility from the synagogue leaders. I mean, Paul has constantly been run out of town, uh, sometimes just, you know, just in order to, to, to save his own skin. Uh, and we know of occasions when the, the commercial supporters of pagan worship also got upset about the fact that Paul was preaching the message he did. So uh, the Christians uh, did cause local unrest. And like other Jews, they refused to acknowledge Caesar's claim to divinity because for them, only Jesus is Lord. Which means that earliest Christianity was always vulnerable to violence. I think I mentioned to you that when I was doing my stroke recovery uh, reading of the New Testament allowed to myself in vast, vast chunks, one of the themes that kept coming through when I read the thing in great, great chunks was just how much there was violence just beneath the surface all the time. There were always people out to get Jesus, always trying to, um, to catch him out, and eventually they did and, and killed him. And the same occurred right through the book of Acts. There was always violence just, just beneath the surface. And the church was vulnerable to that because it was a dissident messianic movement that enjoyed no official recognition or protection from the authorities. And yet, despite that, talk about fragility, despite their marginal status, the church grew rapidly. It's been estimated, I don't know how they estimate this, um, but this is the kind of consensus view amongst ancient historians that by the beginning of the 4th century, anywhere between 8 and 10% of the imperial population, which had been between 5 and 6 million people, belonged to the church. Which means, if that is true, uh, and Alan Crider, who was a dear friend of Margaret and mine, who's, who's written on this material, thinks that's maybe a bit optimistic, but... If it is true, it means that during the previous 250 years, the church had grown at 40% a decade, which is enough to make the modern church growth movement's eyes water with that kind of growth. 
Sorry? Good yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, in other words, the church succeeded in bearing witness to the ends of the earth and in becoming a significant force for change in the lives of millions well before the birth of Christendom, when the resources available and the rules of the game changed dramatically. So how do we explain this? And with our Christendom mindset and our Christian background and a society that's been so deeply shaped by Christianity, uh, we don't often realise just how surprising, how improbable this level of growth actually was. How is it to be explained that this movement that began with a sort of uh, crucified Messiah in a back region of a small province in the empire ended up growing and becoming such a significant uh, religious movement. How, how is that to be explained? Nobody was ever compelled to join the church. Nobody was forced by invading armies or the passing of laws as happened later. I remember one time it popped into my mind going to some, um, some icon, Russian icon uh, display and when you sort of followed the, the text on the walls, you know how they have the sort of the explanations it went something like 11th century, all of Russia became Christian, you know, because that was the time when the Tsar decided to become a Christian or whatever he was, and everybody suddenly was a Christian, whether they liked it or not. That didn't happen in the pre-Christian period. And there were powerful disincentives from joining the church. Why would you want to join a church where you risk martyrdom and rejection by, by your family and public ridicule and gossiping? and punishment from unbelieving masters and from unbelieving husbands. Uh, why would you want to belong to a community like that? And yet, people did, and the church grew. And so the question is, how do we explain this? What was the key to the success of the church? If by success you mean the fact that it, it, it spread its witness and people were, were drawn to it. Well, I think we can tick off the things that it wasn't due to. It wasn't due to the methods that are familiar to the modern church growth movement or to the evangelical or the modern missionary movement that we all know so well. It wasn't due to public evangelistic campaigns. They simply did not happen. From the mid-60s onwards, the church was a prescribed superstition, so bearing public witness, the way Paul did, was dangerous. And the church did not seek public attention. There were no decades of evangelism, such as the 1990s were deemed as a way of saving the Anglican church from devastation. The closest thing that Christians came to public testimony was when individual martyrs suffered interrogation or public execution for their faith. There was not due to any organised planned missionary strategy. There were no missionary training schools. There were no missionary societies, of course. There were no trained and accredited evangelists. There were no iconic missionary heroes. There was no second Paul. There was nobody after Paul's life who replicated Paul's missionary endeavours. There was, and this might be a real surprise, there was no appeal to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. You know, the one that, that um, we've all been brought up on. Because... The early church thought that was for the first apostles and Paul, and they had done it already. That was their task. 
Also surprising to us would be the fact that there were no seeker-sensitive worship services. There was no attempt to use Christian worship services to attract unbelievers. In fact, quite the opposite. From the late 2nd century onwards, non-believers were barred from coming to a Christian gathering, with deacons actually serving as bouncers on the door to make sure that unbelievers did not creep in to a, to a meeting. They were especially excluded from participation in the, in the Eucharist, which was considered too holy, too potent, and too spiritually dangerous for curious onlookers to dabble in. Worship services were designed to enable Christians to worship God, not to entertain or fascinate or attract outsiders. So there's a quote on your handout. Christians did not worry the absence of pagans from their services constituted a lost opportunity. Their worship was not evangelistic. It was not seeker-sensitive. Their intent in worshipping was to glorify God, not to attract outsiders. So there are no cafe churches, there are no music festivals, there was no alpha courses, there was no bring-a-friend dinners, there was no attempt to lower the barriers to belonging to make it easier for people to come and understand. In a sense, and this might be um, a bit of a shocking thing to say, but as I sort of read and researched in this area, I got the sense that the early Christians actually felt no pressure to save the lost because they saw salvation as God's responsibility and their role was to be co-workers with God. And they knew both from scripture and from their own experience two crucial things about the way, the way God works for saving purposes. <clears throat> the first is that God is apparently incredibly patient, incredibly long-suffering, that he works mysteriously and inexorably over long centuries to accomplish his work of love. They wrote treatises about patience. That was a virtue that they saw as being a primary virtue for Christians, and it was modeled on the fact that God is a patient, long-suffering, forbearing God. And the second thing they knew is that God's supreme appeal to humanity God's supreme way of speaking to humanity is through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who shows us the truth and who teaches us how we are to live the truth. And these two insights generated a kind of concern for quality over quantity, for Christian formation over popular marketing, for lived example over verbal enticement. And yet, despite the fact that those things that we are so trained to regard as the key to being a faithful uh, witness in the world, despite the absence of all those things, the church grew. It grew in numbers, it grew in depth, and it grew in strength. And even renowned secular ancient historians have puzzled over why this occurred how it's to be explained. And the answer is, I think, pretty clear. The chief reason why the church grew was the attractiveness 
of the church's entire package, or if you like, its entire way of life. People were attracted at three points in particular. Some were drawn intellectually to the central beliefs of Christians, and especially the belief that Christ had conquered death. And therefore, there is no need to fear death any longer for those who believe. That was an incredibly attractive thing about the Christian message. And it was in our songs uh, earlier uh, this evening. So they're attracted to the kind of, if you like, the kind of intellectual superstructure of the faith. But they weren't persuaded by philosophical or theological arguments. They were persuaded by what they saw embodied in the lives of Christians who believed this sort of experience, this stuff. The church members were not taught how to do apologetics. They are not taught how to win arguments or how to share their faith in three spiritual laws. Rather, as the quotes on your, your handout indicate, uh, Cyprian, one of the early fathers, said, We are philosophers not in words, but in deeds. We do not speak great things, but we live them. Or Tertullian, people prefer example before talk because talk is easy and example is hard. Or Justin, not our Justin, but Justin Martyr, said every prophet who teaches the truth but fails to practice what he preaches is a false prophet. So they're attracted to the, the beliefs, but they're attracted because they saw them embodied in the lives of Christians. Secondly, many were attracted to the presence of divine power amongst the Christians, especially their practices of healing and exorcism. When people joined the church, <clears throat> sorry, when people, uh, people in, in antiquity, and you get the sense when you, when you read, uh, say, <clears throat> the epistle to the Ephesians or, the, or Colossians, you get the sense that people in antiquity felt oppressed by uh, predatory spiritual forces. They felt vulnerable to these, these, these spiritual principalities and powers. And they used magical and occult practices to try and protect themselves from these, uh, these spiritual evil, spiritual powers. When people joined the church at baptism, they renounced Satan and they underwent actually repeated exorcisms. It was probably a bit formulaic, but it was still a kind of, you know, a kind of challenge to the role of uh, our spiritual evil forces in their lives. Their worship gatherings as well, obviously pulsated with God's presence and God's power. Uh, and particularly uh, striking was the role that prayer played, this sort of passionate collective prayer for provision and protection in what was a very precarious world. Not that outsiders saw this bubbling energy firsthand because they weren't allowed to come. But what they saw was its results in the lives of their neighbours. And many craved the same kind of freedom and fearlessness that they saw uh, their Christian neighbours display. But the most important thing to explain why the church was so attractive to onlookers, the most important thing, was the ethical conduct of the believers. The way that Christian conversion created better people. 
The most reliable means of communicating, Alan cried again, the most reliable means of communicating the attractiveness of the faith to others and entice them to investigate things further was the Christian's character, bearing and behaviour. The habitus, the whole habitat in which the Christian lived uh, was crucial to this uh, attractiveness of, of, um, of the gospel. Especially notable to onlookers was the way that Christians showed hospitality to travellers, the way they shared their food and their resources with the poor and the needy, the way they visited prisoners and the sick, the way that they rescued infants who had been exposed by their fathers because they didn't want the child, the way they cared for widows and orphans, which was the sort of almost iconic self-defining practice of this community, is care for the widow and the orphan the way they maintained sexual purity and fidelity, the way they avoided anger and retaliation and killing of every kind, the way that they spoke truthfully and were honest in their business dealings, the way that they accorded value and dignity to slaves and to women and to children, the way that they were bound together by strong ties of love and service. So again, Tertullian, one of the early theologians, said that the, the heathens say, Vide, look, look how they love one another and how they're ready to die for each other. So according to one historian, the practical application of charity was probably the most potent single cause of Christian success. So the answer to the question is, how, why did the church grow? The answer to that question is, the church grew by attraction more than by proclamation. And the attraction stemmed by consciously modeling themselves on the life and teaching of Jesus. So again, Justin Martyr, they had the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ himself engraven on their hearts, and these they observed. So the next question becomes, well, how did the church ensure such attraction occurred? How did they ensure that Christians were truly converted into a Christ-like way of being? And that leads us to the, the, the notion of conversion. So if you're still with me, number four on your list. Let's go back to the day of Pentecost because there's a really fascinating contrast that occurs in the subsequent centuries to what prevailed in the New Testament period. So after the, the Pentecostal experience, Peter stood up and preached to the Jerusalem crowd a big, long, big, long uh, sermon. And people said, what then should we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you'll receive the Holy, gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and your children and all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. So that, this is the pattern that we all know and the one that we have all replicated uh, in evangelistic efforts in our time. It occurs right throughout Acts. People are persuaded by what they hear. 
they confess their faith, they receive the gift of the Spirit, they're baptised in water, all in rapid succession. Sometimes, you know, on the same day, the same sort of uh, sequence of things happen. So we all, we all recognise that, and we still do it. That, you know, in the, certainly in the evangelical uh, churches, that is still the method that we follow. Fascinatingly, however, I find this fascinating. In the post-apostolic period, in the next couple of hundred years, the whole process of conversion or Christian initiation was dramatically slowed down. Baptism and incorporation into the life of the church were delayed until a period of instruction and formation had occurred, lasting for several years. Now, we tend to think of Christian formation, or to use the theological term, sanctification, as subsequent to initial faith and baptism. You get in the door by faith and baptism, you belong, and then you start to work on the issues that you're, you, you need to change in your life. That's the way that uh, we think about it, the way that we're almost encouraged to think about it in the New Testament. But for the the early church in the in the subsequent centuries, uh, this formation or sanctification was seen as a prerequisite for baptism and belonging. So baptism and full incorporation in the church came last, not first. And the main reason for the slowing down of the process, which did reverse the New Testament order, the main reason seems to have been contextual. So in the New Testament period, most converts came from a Jewish background. They had already been formed by the biblical story. They already knew the ethical demands of God's law. They already knew about the dangers of idolatry. And they were already formed by this stuff from, you know, from the cradle. But a century later, most converts were coming from a pagan background. And the early believers, for the, certainly the early church leaders, felt that they needed to be morally and spiritually rewired to develop a kind of Christian mindset and Christian habits uh, that may have been much easier for a person from a Jewish background to acquire uh, than it was for them. And that kind of profound identity and behavioural transformation they recognised takes time and it requires effort. It was like breaking a set of cultural addictions, and we all know how hard it is to break an addiction. And this, for them, was important. The church's witness was at stake. The church's deep-seated rejection of idolatry, of immorality, and of bloodshed could be quickly lost, or at least compromised, if pagan converts flooded into the church on the basis of simple belief alone, without a kind of conscious stripping away of the prior values and habits and practices that they brought with them from their background and are re-socialising them into what Paul calls the ways of Christ. Now, the means by which the early church did this uh, may no longer work for us and probably wouldn't work for us in a post-Christendom setting. So what I'm going to go on and explain, I'm not offering as a model for the way it ought to be done today. 
But I think the concerns and the principles that motivated them for doing this are still very relevant for the church today. And again, uh, without wanting to constantly uh, tarnish American evangelicalism as, as, a, uh, as a source of all things gone wrong, but the political capture of the contemporary American evangelical movement, uh, which has attracted dozens and dozens and dozens of articles by people who are scratching their heads trying to explain what's happening and why it's happened, what to do about it. One of the articles I read described the current problem as, and I quote, a massive failure of discipleship rooted in a massive failure of catechesis. Catechesis is the Greek word for teaching. A massive failure of discipleship rooted in a massive failure of catechesis. And I think that is spot on. The long-standing failure of the Protestant Evangelical Church to attend seriously to Christ-like formation in its broader sense, the kind of sense we talked about last night uh, when the disciples were expected to really revise their whole way of operating and being in the world, that kind of comprehensive formation, the long-standing failure to attend to that has now had deadly serious consequences for the credibility of the gospel and indeed for the name of Christ in the post-Christendom world. So, how did the early church tackle that kind of issue? They tackled it by seeing the process of becoming a Christian as a journey rather than an event. A journey that passed through three and later four distinct stages. And just very briefly, just to get a feel for what emerges from, um, from the literature around this period, the first stage was that of encountering Christian role models. So Christians and non-Christians lived on top of each other in you know, heavily populated cities. They lived in the same buildings, they worked in the same I was going to say factories, I don't know if they had factories there, but they had, they had the same uh, workspaces. Um, they, the, you know, the, w there's no way that a Christian could live their life in private. Uh, and some observed things happening in their Christian neighbours that they wanted to explore further. And they would talk to their neighbour, and the, the neighbour, being a Christian, um, might choose to recommend this person to the leaders of the church. You know, here's... John Brown, he's interested. Uh, do you think he could be instructed uh, by you in the faith? And um, uh, apparently the church leaders did not throw their arms open and said, great, another, another recruit. Uh, they actually did not welcome with open arms. Instead, they subjected the sponsor, the Christian neighbour, to a rigorous scrutiny. They actually called the first scrutiny. It was a rigorous interrogation about this person's lifestyle, their participation in idolatry, astrology, opulence, bloodshed, sexual immorality. Is this, does this person do that sort of stuff? And if the person did, the person could well be sent away to work on those sorts of issues and come back later. I mean, this is so counterintuitive to the way that we think it should have happened. Um, to show that they are really serious about their commitment and to show that they are humble enough 
to be teachable. The church categorically at this stage refused to admit people whose occupations contradicted church teaching, such as if they were involved in the making of idols, or if they're involved in the gladiatorial contests, or whether they're in the army and they're actually involved in taking of, of, of human life. Those people could not join the church until they left their occupation behind. Again, this is so, you can imagine it happening if a person, I don't know, ran a brothel and came along and said, I want to join the church. And then the, the pastor might scratch their heads and say, well, are you sure you're in the right job? But um, when we were in the States, uh, gosh, how many years ago was it now? Near 30 years ago, the, uh, the Mennonite church was in a major uh, debate about whether serving military officers could be baptised into the church. Now, no other church in the world would struggle over that, but they did. They thought the occupation is one that they think compromises the church's commitment to nonviolence. And so the early church you know, was, was clear that certain, certain occupations uh, meant you could not join unless you changed. So they were, they were looking for serious inquirers, obviously, who were prepared to devote themselves to personal and moral change. And if they were like that, they'd be admitted to the next stage, which is the, the, the stage of the catechumenate, uh, where they would be instructed intensively several times a week uh, in Christian doctrine. No, actually, it wasn't Christian doctrine. It was Christian lifestyle issues. Doctrine came later. Uh, the instruction was intended to reshape this person's instincts, this person's habits and reflexes. And it lasted for anything up to five years. Can you imagine that as a church growth, church growth strategy? The converts were taught the biblical narrative in terms of the broad sweep of biblical history. They were taught key biblical texts to memorize. Uh, interestingly, one of the most frequently, I haven't got it in my notes, one of the most frequently occurring verses at this period that, um, that was quoted by the early fathers was that one in Isaiah. It's in Isaiah 2 and in Micah, is it about you know, beating plowshares, swords into plowshares, and you know the text. That was one that they, they often learnt by heart because that captured something of what the gospel uh, meant for them. They, they, they learned the teachings of Jesus, especially from the Sermon on the Mount. They learned key symbolic practices like the sign of the cross, which I wish I was, I'd love to have done that. I think it's a beautiful sign. Um, and the early Christians used it all the time. Uh, the kiss of peace, we've talked about that in previous sessions. Uh, standing for prayer with the hands raised, which was a common way of doing it, but the Christians were different, but they, they did it together. They prayed together uh, with their hands, and when a person prayed, they pointed their hands. This is like a Pentecostal service. Pointed their hands towards the person who was praying. Uh, they, they were taught slogans for how to confess their faith under interrogation. Uh, they were taught their practical responsibilities to care for widows, to help the poor, to live simply, to live generously. If they came from a wealthy background, they're expected to sort of downsize themselves. There was a strong emphasis on fostering what today we'd call a culture of peace, teaching them how to speak gently, how to overcome anger, how to avoid cursing, how to be forgiving, how to avoid boasting and flattery or the demeaning of others by their speech, how to be non-violent people, to be, and these are the words that occur in their, in their literature, to be a peaceful people, to be soldiers of peace, be part of God's bloodless army. I think it's a great image. I'm a Christian soldier. God's bloodless army. And during this catechetical phase, 
the candidate was in a kind of liminal space because they didn't gather with the faithful, didn't pray with the faithful in, in their worship services. They did not share the Eucharist at this stage. They did not share the kiss of peace, which always preceded the Eucharist, uh, because they were still learning how to be a Christian. And at the end of this period, again, the poor old sponsor, who maybe regretted recommending somebody, was again scrutinized about this person's behavior. Has this person changed? It wasn't scrutinized about, has this person mastered doctrine? Because some of that stuff hadn't been taught yet. They weren't scrutinized about the person's prayer life. They were scrutinized about the person's actions. Uh, actions spoke louder than words. And then the third stage was a stage of enlightenment, of receiving orthodox theological belief, the, the so-called rule of faith, the idea of the death and resurrection of Christ dealing with sin, and the, the, the sometimes surprising doctrine they suddenly do, discovered of the Trinity. I mean, how do you make sense of that? Uh, they learned the Lord's Prayer. They learned other spiritual disciplines. They underwent, again, repeated exorcisms. And after fasting and an all-night vigil at Easter time, they went... Uh, underwent baptism, which was clearly a very powerful experience. They were baptized naked, uh, symbolizing the stripping off of worldly loyalties and social hierarchies, because I guess we're all the same when we're naked. They renounced Satan. They were signed with a cross, which again, I think is a beautiful symbol. They're immersed three times. They're anointed with oil and they're given new garments. And only then did they receive the Eucharist. And only then did they share the kiss of peace with other believers. And only then did they join in the common prayers of the community. And in a sense, you could say, only then were they full members of the Ecclesia. So it's a really interesting, interesting, um, counterintuitive story uh, that comes from these early centuries. I guess the one thing that comes from it is that Christian conversion for them was more than saying the sinner's prayer. It was an extended process of catechetical training and transformation that culminated in baptism. Yes, it reversed the pattern in the New Testament, and it certainly was unlike what followed after the introduction of universal infant baptism, which happened at the very beginning of one's life. But it was obviously thought to be necessary in the context in which they were living their faith and, and seeking to preserve the, uh, the integrity of their Christ-like way of, of being. And I guess the key principle that emerges from the story for us is that they saw that Christian identity requires the fundamental reshaping of one's moral and social and spiritual values and actions. The sort of stuff we talked about uh, yesterday. And that refocusing, uh, that, uh, that reshaping, focuses squarely on the teaching and the example of Jesus. And that seems to have been the most important principle behind this elaborate way of bringing people into the fold. And I guess the question for the church in the post-Christendom context, and the question for us in this context, is how do we assure or ensure the same kind of outcome in the way that we do faith in a context that is not their context, in the sense of the, of the pre-Christian context, 
because our context is one in which the church's language and the church's reputation have been so deeply compromised and so stripped of its power and its meaning that um, that we, you know, we, I think we just can't carry on doing the things we've always done because the, the, the language is not connecting uh, the way it once did. I can't imagine Billy Graham, for example, coming on the scene and having the same impact today that he did 50 years ago. So I'm going to skip over the next section, going to church in the ancient world, um, and just come to the, come to the, uh, to the final section. So after Constantine, the church increasingly moved from the fringes of mainstream culture and imperial power to the center. So instead of being resident aliens, which is how 1 Peter 1 describes Christians in the world, resident aliens, they simply became residents. Everybody now was a Christian by birth and by enforced belief. The marriage of church, state and culture that was Christendom has been a mixed blessing. It's not been all bad by, by any means. I guess you could say that on the one hand, it's been good for the world because the worst abuses of paganism were moderated as Christian values, for example, on the universal uh, dignity of all, of all people, as that kind of value gradually seeped into the fabric of the culture. So you could say that Christendom was okay for the world, but it hasn't been all that good for the church, uh, I, I think, because the church became increasingly accommodated to wealth, to power, to violence, and to hierarchical respectability. And um, one, of the, one of the ways this was shown, remember in Alan's book, pointing out how clerical robes suddenly uh, became quite ornate, befitting the aristocracy. Uh, whereas before that, an aristocrat or, or a wealthy person was expected to get, get rid of their fancy clothes and wear just ordinary clothes. But as the church became accommodated to its role in society, it, it allowed, to use Paul's words, it allowed the world to squeeze it into its own mould. Because in a Christendom context, the key question is not, what does Jesus teach? But is it possible for everyone? The key criterion is not what, uh, what I mean, does it look like Jesus? The key criterion is, is the Bible for Caesar? Can every citizen act that way? The radical demands of Jesus were certainly accommodated, but they were confined to the monastery and to religious orders for people who really were, you know, out for sainthood. Everybody else in a Christendom setting was expected to live by common sense, Christian common sense. Because everybody knew how to be a Christian because you were born that way. But not everybody was expected to be a disciple of Jesus. And the church's witness suffered accordingly. But Christendom is in its final death rattle. And the institutional church is reeling with decline and decrepitude. And the context that we're in is increasingly pluralistic, and that is not going to change uh, overnight to go back to what it was. And so the, the question that every Christian community, I guess, faces is how does the community of Jesus uh, 
fulfill those vocational tasks that were listed in the handout last night to be beneficiaries of God's restoring power and therefore a sign of hope to the rest of humanity, to be a guardian and proclaimer of the story of Jesus, because if the story of Jesus is lost, we have no idea what's going on. To be a microcosm of redeemed humanity uh, in our present context and to be an instrument for God's restoring work in the wider world. If the example of the pre-Constantinian church is in any sense relevant, then the things that I would pick out from the stuff that I've covered, and you know, I just really just try to get more to start with C, really. But I just sat back at the end of this thought and and thought, well, what and what what have I learned from this process? What is it about this story, which I certainly found really interesting? I hope you found it at least a bit interesting. What is it from that? From that story of the church in a pluralistic, hostile environment, struggling to 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 you know to to continue the movement, as as Kay said uh, this morning, that we're here because this movement hasn't died away as most social movements do. As they try to work, what is it that need we need to really understand and and, and stress? Well, these are the things that I'd pick: a defining focus on the person and the teaching and the example and the presence of Christ. Now, once as you would say, every Christian tradition, by definition, is focused on Christ. But in reality, they're not always focused on Christ. They're focused on the name of Christ as solving a problem that enables God to save humanity. But the idea of seeing Jesus himself as the, as, as the model for how we should navigate life and navigate the demands of, of our, our context uh, is actually not that widespread. And I think the church, the early church, put Christ at the centre. Another thing was this emphasis on conversion. The idea that uh, the saved, if you like, are on a journey of conversion that entails an ongoing commitment to the transformation of our life uh, in all its dimensions. An emphasis on a common life, uh, shared by, uh, uh, marked by rich relationships of mutual care, hospitality, and accountability. You know, Italians see, look how they love one another. Uh, that was the, that was the thing that made the, the message so attractive to outsiders. Uh, catechetical formation. You know, I, I. I you know, being an academic, of course, I, I think this is really important. But I, I think the renewal of our minds through instruction and worship and prayer and service and so on is really, really important. And I think it's the lack of that you know, that, that allows the church to, you know, to be to be um, carried along by every wind that's going on in the wider society. An emphasis on collaboration, and not control. And by that I mean a collaboration with wherever, however, and whoever our patient God chooses us to work. Rather than trying to control what God is doing, collaborating with what we see God is doing, even if God is doing it in a most unusual and unexpected way. The importance of cultural critique and affirmation, uh, not assimilation or accommodation, and then finally, this phrase that 
Um, I don't know if you've ever come across the theology of presence. The idea that our witness uh, to the world around us, if you like, our mission, is a mission through being present with people. Uh, growth through attraction. That people can be attracted to what Christ is about by seeing us as flawed and fragile people um, gradually in ways that we often can't recognise in ourselves being transformed into the image of Christ. I remember that my mother, um, just again, just popped to my mind when I was just reading this before this evening, my mother uh, had a workmate who had become a Christian uh, through observing the life of her neighbour. And her neighbour, this person, was an alcoholic who, you know, from any other sort of perspective, was really struggling with things that you'd think weren't a tremendous testimony to the power and transformative life of Christ. But she saw something in him, um, despite his, his, his struggles. Uh, and I think this theology of presence, which is not to say that we don't proclaim or we don't explain or we don't, you know, we don't, um, we don't invite and all that sort of stuff. All that stuff is, is still important. But I mean, beyond all that is the, is the responsibility think, to attract by allowing this reality to work itself out in our own lives.